I had a cousin, Rob. I had a cousin, Rob, who when he was younger was athletic and trim. And Rob lived in the south. He lived in the part of the south where in the summertime it's 88, 89, 90 degrees, 92 degrees with 100,000% humidity. And Rob loved to run. And because he was athletic and trim, he would run shirtless. And when he was done with the run, when he would come in, he looked like he had taken a swim in the pool. Only it wasn't chlorinated water. It was man sweat. (laughs) Rob had a girlfriend, Krista. And Krista loved Rob. She liked him. She wanted to be with him. In fact, she wanted to marry him. And Rob would come in after having done the run did I mention with no shirt, covered in man sweat. And he would come up to Krista and give her a full body hug. Some of you women, your faces are starting to turn. Your noses are turned up. Yeah, yeah, Rob didn't learn too many things in his young years. Rob also would tease Krista He would tease her and she would giggle and then she would laugh. And we all knew when the moment came, it was a very shrill, Rob! That meant stop. Only Rob wouldn't stop. He kept teasing and pushing. And at the end of it, you know what he would want? He would want a really long kiss from her. Yes, you women are doing the same thing. See, Rob did things that were called what I call woman repellent. He just did things that are just woman repellent. No woman wants a full body hug from a man covered in man sweat. Women, can I ask you a question? Would you want to be hugged by a man covered in man sweat? No. Some of you know some young men or some young bucks who are on the learning curve. They never shave anywhere at all. Some of you know some grandparents. And you're like, Grandpa, that stuff coming out your ear, that's just, that ain't right. (laughs) Okay? Some of you know some young bucks, and their definition of clean clothes is that there are no visible stains. It's just a, yeah, we're good. As if their nose is sensitive enough to determine whether or not it's really clean. Okay? You know some guys that are merciless and they're teasing and they cross the line past the shrill, okay? And they think it's no big deal. Then there are the young guys and they're athletic and they're trim and they know they're athletic and they're trim and it kind of carries over in their attitude. They kind of walk into the room with the swagger. They purposely look for opportunities to go bare-chested. You know the kind, again, Classic woman repellent. Women see that and they go, ah, and they want to run the opposite direction. It's woman repellent. We know this when it comes to boy-girl, man-woman relationships. But did you know there are things you and I can do that actually repel the spirit? Did you know there are things you and I can do, attitudes that we can have that actually repel the spirit? Last week, we talked about the fact that the universe, that reality is made up of two parts, physical and non-physical, or matter and spirit. 
And we said, you and me and every human being is made up of two things, body and spirit. And that if you're a born-again believer, God's spirit actually lives inside of you. I remember a time in my 20s uh, when I was devouring the word. I was reading the word cover to cover regularly. And I was praying, not just individually, but I, was, I had prayer partner, prayer buddies that would meet me at different times during the week. I had a real hunger for God. And I remember that time in my 20s, it was like I heard the Spirit regularly. I felt the Spirit nudge. I felt Him encourage. I felt Him empower. I felt Him guide. I felt Him direct. I remember another time in my 20s, when I was in seminary, where the Bible sat on the shelf and where my prayer life consisted of me in the car going, help me, Jesus, help me. And that was my prayer life. And I remember at that time, you know, when it came to the Spirit, it was, yeah, just like that, nothing. It was nothing. I want to talk about cultivating and attracting the Spirit today. And I want to talk about ways in which we can repel the Spirit. Um, If you're born again, we said last week, if you're a born again believer, God's Spirit actually lives inside of you, okay? But did you know that God is a little particular about the kind of vessel or the kind of container that He's going to fill? Did you know that? We see it first in the Old Testament when it comes to the tabernacle and the temple. Those are two physical dwellings or buildings in which God was going to settle and fill in a special way. God didn't just tell the Israelites, hey, I'm going to come down and kind of manifest myself in a spot. Go build me something. No, you read those texts and God's very, very particular. We might almost say anal in terms of the detail he lists out for these buildings. It's got to be so many feet long and so many feet wide. And the claws that you use have to be this kind of material. It has to be woven this way. And oh, the metal pieces, you can't just forge anything. It's got to be forged this way with this kind of stuff uh, carved into it. Very, very particular. And then there's a whole set of rules and regulations about who can enter what parts. And only certain people can enter the courtyard. And only priests can go this far. And then the spot where his spirit dwelled in that special way, only one person could go in that place one time a year. Very, very particular. And you and I might say, wait a minute, that's the Old Testament Of course there were rules. We're in the New Testament. There's no rules. There's no regulations. I'm free, right? Free. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are we really free to do anything we want? Are we really free to to do whatever we please? Sometimes, and some people might think that way. And actually, there was a group of people who thought that way in the book of uh, Corinthians. They were uh, members of the uh, Corinthian church. And that's where I'm going to take us this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're going to start in verse 12. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12. There's a group of Christians in the church of Corinth. And they, uh, they kind of go by the name Libertines. They're the Libertines. Maybe they started the Libertarian Party. Okay. All right. 
And they had some slogans that they would throw around. And if, they, if only they had known about t-shirts back then, these things would have been on t-shirts and they would have been selling them at every marketplace all around the Mediterranean. All right? In this section, Paul says this to them. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say, food was made for the stomach and stomach for the food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise from the dead, us from the dead, by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. So there's a couple of slogans in this, in this section. I'm allowed to do anything. And then food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. We have expressions today. Uh, we have an expression, I want to get this right, if it feels good, do it. Now some of you who are older and wiser know, well that expression is like ruin some marriages and then there's some health issues that come into play, right? Okay? <laughs> That, that didn't go so well. And that's Paul's attitude in hearing these slogans. And he's thinking to himself, whoa, wait a minute. You really think that's great to go down that path? These Corinthian libertines had concluded, just as the food is for stomach and the stomach for food, the body is for sexual release and sexual release is for the body. There were a group of Corinthian believers, believe it or not, that were going to visit prostitutes regularly. Because after all, a man has needs. Those needs need to be met. It's entirely natural. God made the body. In fact, he made it for sexual release. I'm free in Christ. Ding, we're all winners. That was what they were thinking. Come on. And so Paul is writing this section to kind of correct this thinking. And he's saying, no, 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 no. No, 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 wait a minute. Our bodies aren't for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Our relationship with God isn't just a spiritual one, it's a physical one. And so in verses 15 through 17, we're going to get in a little bit more on what he's saying and how he's arguing this here. Verse 15, don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is a part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Paul's saying three things in this verse. He's saying, first of all, the body of a Christian is actually part of the body of Jesus Christ himself. And then he says, secondly, when two people have sex, they become one. Not just physically, but in a spiritual, there's something spiritually that's going on too. And so, the third point he makes is, so, hey guys, if you're going down to the agora and having sex with a prostitute, you're taking God along with you. And in effect, linking the prostitute to Jesus Christ himself in a way that's not honoring to God. And some of us would go, whoa, that's like creepy logic. But that's the argument that Paul is making, okay? And here's why he's making it. And this is why, this is the part I wanted to focus on, but I wanted you to get the context, all right? And that's verses 18, 19, and 20. Paul says this, run from sexual sin. 
No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. But here's the kicker. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You don't belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Your body is the new temple of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 3 of this book, Paul says that the collective body, the, the church, all Christians together, that that is the new temple in which God's Spirit dwells. Now, in this chapter, Paul is saying each individual believer is also a temple for God's Spirit. God's Spirit is living inside the body of a believer. And so the point of the temple is that that's where God lived. And the point Paul is making in this passage is that if you're a believer, God is living in you. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in your body means you can't do as you please in terms of guys going down to the agora and having pain for sex with a prostitute. So here's where the rubber hits the road. I love the way Tom Wright talks about this passage. This is, and he tells the story to set it up. He says... I knew a student who lived in a small apartment. It was an efficiency apartment. And this was one of those young men's students who didn't have a toolbox, but he had a pocket knife. And so he used his pocket knife as a screwdriver. Didn't matter whether it was Phillips or standard. In went the pocket knife to tighten the screw. And he did this time and time again. Over time, the blade of the pocket knife became bent. And one day, as he was tightening a screw... The blade itself broke, cutting his hand in three places. And, and what, what Tom Wright says is this passage is all about using, learning to use our human body the right way for the right purpose. Our body is actually a dwelling place for God himself. In the same way that the temple in Jerusalem housed God, you and I house God in our bodies. Right? So let me ask some questions related to this. All right? The first question is this Is your body a fit container for God's Spirit? Is your body a fit container for God's Spirit? And this isn't about perfection or following a set of rules or those kinds of things. It's about are you expecting God to bless you and fill you and encourage you and guide you? All the while, you're doing these things that are spirit repellents with your attitudes or your ongoing recurring actions. Okay? Is your body a fit container for God's spirit? Remember Rob and Krista at the beginning? Just like Rob did, thing, did things that were Krista woman repellents, there are things that you and I do with our attitudes and our actions that are spirit repellents. And just like Krista still loved Rob... God's love or likability for us isn't diminished. It's just that there are things that we can do that actually repel his spirit. And I want you and me to be mindful of that. This is what A.W. Tozer says, and I, I just couldn't improve on what he does. You read his sermons, which were delivered in the 1950s, and you have to pinch yourself because you're thinking, that was 60 years ago because the way he talks, it's just like 2012, okay? But th this is what he says regarding the body, our bodies as, the, as a temple for God's spirit, as a place for God's spirit to dwell. He says, 
Make your thoughts a clean sanctuary. To God, our thoughts are things. Our thoughts are the decorations inside the sanctuary where we live. If our thoughts are purified by the blood of Christ, we're living in a clean room, no matter if we're wearing overalls covered with grease. Your thoughts pretty much decide the mood and weather and climate inside your heart. And God considers thoughts as part of you. Thoughts of peace, thoughts of pity, thoughts of mercy, thoughts of kindness, thoughts of charity, thoughts of God, and thoughts of the Son of God. These are pure things, good things, and high things. Therefore, if you would cultivate the Spirit's acquaintance, you must get hold of your thoughts and not allow your mind to be a wilderness in which every kind of unclean beast roams and bird flies. You must have a clean heart. That's what Tozer says. Let me, let me ask a second question. For those of you that are born-again believers, have you ever considered the fact that your body does not belong to you, that it actually belongs to the Lord? Have you ever considered what the right or proper use of your body might be as it relates to your relationship with the Lord? All right, so I've asked some questions. We've looked at this passage Tomorrow, you're going to go to school. You're going to go to work. You're going to interface with people in life and reality. So how does this hit the road, right? Where does the rubber hit the road? Well, let me suggest some things, all right? Tomorrow or Tuesday or Wednesday, if you get into work or you get into school and something unplanned happens, there's a curve, there's a change, there's a switch, you could get like angry and frustrated, right? You could. You'd be like, oh, man, I was totally planning on that paper being due today. And now they're moving the date. Or, oh, you got to be kidding me. Bill's out. Now I got to do my job and his job too. Thank you, supervisor. Oh, Lord, please promote my supervisor. Okay. What, in, in, in that moment, instead of getting angry, instead of getting frustrated, ask the spirit, hey, are you responsible for any of these changes today? Is there something that you're wanting me to do? What are, what, what's up, spirit? Just that simple act. And the reason I say that is because all throughout the book of Acts, you see uh, this happening a lot. Uh, Jesus' followers are doing something and they have a plan and then there's a curveball thrown in and they're going this direction. And the curveball is actually God because God is wanting to do something that was different that was, that, than what was on the agenda of Jesus' followers. Um, classic examples in my life are um, I join an activity, um, whether it's swim team or whatever, and I think it's about the activity, and then I meet somebody, that, and all it is is God wanted me to interface with somebody that God really cares about that's far from him. And so... Again, you find yourself in a situation where there's a curveball or a left turn and you weren't expecting it, ask God, hey, Holy Spirit, are you, do you have anything to do with this? Is there something you're wanting me to see or do? All right. Uh, the, the second thing is uh, when you've been wanting something and you've been praying for it and praying for it and praying for it, and at the end of the day, it doesn't happen. Uh, that is a profound opportunity to get like kind of really grumpy, Right. When I get in those moments, if I have my wits about me, I pray my uncle prayer. This is what I call my uncle prayer. When I've really wanted something to happen, and I've prayed for it and prayed for it, prayed for it, and then boom, that it doesn't turn out the way I want it to, 
I, I say to the Spirit, Uncle, you have my attention now. Is there anything you're wanting me to learn or know? Oftentimes, the Spirit will say something to me in those moments, and the Spirit will tell me things that He's wanting me to learn or know and, and, and understand about Him and whatnot. Okay, so uh, uncle prayers come in handy from time to time. Um, when you're deciding what restaurant to go or where to go on vacation, why not just give a preliminary, hey, Holy Spirit, hey, God, you want to have any part of that decision? Or your calendar. You know, we all put things in our calendar all the time, and we're mapping things out, and we're packing them and all that stuff. What if we simply consulted the Spirit before we mapped out some of the things that we actually commit to? And again, that's part of recognizing the Spirit's presence and filling of our lives and partnership with us in life. Okay? I want to tell you about a man who has two institutions named after him in our community. His name is Francis Asbury. There, we, in, if you live in Jessamine County, there are two institutions named after this man. Asbury University and Asbury Theological Seminary. Francis Asbury was an appointed preacher from John Wesley sent from England to America. And his job was to simply preach the gospel and make disciples. And he did that within the context of Methodism, which at the time was part of the Anglican church. Probably 20 years ago, I read through all three volumes of his letters and journals and each volume was about this thick. So there's a lot of pages. I really gained an appreciation from that little guy. Uh, Asbury was an amazing, amazing man, in my opinion, an amazing person because of his ability and willingness to be led by the Spirit and to work in cooperation with the Spirit. All throughout his letters, I would find phrases like this. I preached in you know, thus and such place with, quote, little freedom. That's an old phrase, but what he meant by it was, I did my part, I was prepared, I was preaching, but the Spirit wasn't doing anything. I didn't have freedom in my preaching. And then he would use another phrase, the spirits seized upon me. I felt dejected, I felt condemned. Anytime he used spirits, plural, he was talking about things that were going on in the spiritual realm that actually made it harder for him to honor God, follow God, hear God, etc. Um, he would talk about encountering dull, prayerless people. Kind of sounds like an insult, doesn't it? But in, in his mind, what he, was, what he was experiencing was, these aren't people that are open to the Spirit. And then he would talk about uh, 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 people who are, quote, attentive to the Word. And again, in his mind, what he was seeing was the movement of the Spirit and people walking and, and, and being willing to cooperate with the movement of the Spirit. When he started this preaching ministry in America, there were just a handful of Methodists. And he traveled all over. And at the time, at the start of the Revolutionary War, uh, a number of the Methodists were tarred and feathered and beaten up because uh, the colonists thought they were all British sympathizers. But by the time we get to 1820, there are more Methodist churches than there, are, than there were US, U.S. post offices. In just 30, 40 years' time, it goes from nothing to more 
Methodist churches than there are post offices. And when Francis Asbury died, more people knew him by sight than they could recognize George Washington. Now you could say, well, that's just because they were really good organizing or they had a dynamic speaker or it was a great... No, 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 it was none of that. It was the movement of the Spirit. And the Spirit was doing things. And, and little Francis and his friends were simply being willing to be used by the Spirit. I believe the same thing is true today for you and me. And so this week and this year in your life, what if you began living life and on a regular consistent basis, you were aware of what the Spirit was doing? Not just in your life, but in, your, in the lives of your family members, the people that you work with. What if on a regular consistent basis, you were feeling his nudge and his direction and his guidance? What if when you did things, quote, in the name of God, it was the Spirit moving in power and not so much you or your talent or your abilities, but it was God at work? Don't you think the results would be di different and better? I do. What I want for you today is a real simple thing. I just want you to be mindful of the fact that your body is actually a container, a vessel that God wants to fill. And when you go throughout your week this week, everywhere you go, if you're allowing God to fill you, if you're, if you're walking in surrender, you're taking God with you everywhere you go. And that's just what I wanted to do today is remind you and me of that very important